Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Serpent Sales Podcast. Uh, it is Wednesday, the day. Oh, it's Thursday. It's the first day of the NFL, so we're we're you know I don't know if we're going to get into fantasy football, but we have Michael Brown from Valerie Capital. Um, if you don't know who Valerie is, they're definitely one of the elite VCs, particularly at least as I see them out of the Northeast Boston area, but I know they do stuff all over the country. Uh, so Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think, I think one of our, I always like to ask this question is how do you become a VC? Right. It's, it's like, you know, is it, what was your story? The, the answer to how you become a VC is there are, many, many paths, which is unfortunate. I'd like there to be a playbook, but there really isn't. You have people that started companies that wanted to go onto the investing side. You have people who were professional investors throughout their career. Uh, some of us never did anything except VC uh, for their career. Um, and then my specific story. So I was an equity research analyst. I, I started my career at Morgan Stanley on, on the, um, the sell side. And, and I specifically covered a grouping of companies called PC and systems hardware. So PC is fairly obvious. It's, you know, names like Apple and IBM and Lenovo and others, but systems hardware at the time was a bit of software and a bit of hardware. So it was this weird uh, time in software as a service where Salesforce had been public for four or five years. Nobody really knew what was going you know, on and, and, and where this ecosystem was gonna go. So, so the names were basically like Salesforce, EMC, Network Appliance, Semantic, a, lo a lot of the, what I'd call sort of V1.0 um, or, or OGs of the, the software ecosystem. Um, and so I did that for a bit. I really enjoyed it. I got a unique opportunity to move on to the family office side, which was working for Richard Branson's family office. So most, most people know him it, for those that don't, I mean, you know, the, the Virgin group of companies has made him a billionaire many times over and they need to hit, you know, the powers that be need to manage his money effectively. So I was on an investment team that specifically was doing venture capital investing. So that was where I kind of got into the industry. The application of my skill set as a research analyst was particularly helpful to the team. I could analyze companies, look at infrastructure and application, solve mostly software businesses and, and tell them where I thought the world w was going to go. Um, so did you get and, to pitch? Did you get to pitch to pitch Branson? Like these are the, well, I don't, yeah, yeah. The, he, he at the time was a member of the investment committee. There, there were seven people that really ran the group, if you will. And so, yeah, we, we prepared these elaborate memos and it was a lot of intense debate and discussion around investments and yeah. So. How, Michael, how much, how much of, of being a VC is understanding the, the present market and environment versus predicting the future and where it's headed? Yeah, I think there's two things I'd say. One, one is like at our firm, we don't have a crystal ball, nor do we think we're smarter than any entrepreneur that walks through our door. The, the logic being, hey, our job is to sit at a 30,000 foot view and a founder of a technology company is going to have the passion, the expertise, 
the necessity to do so much more, you know, information gathering. And, and really, we like to say, like, we try and find students of particular industries, people who can actually almost become teachers and educate us on why this is a huge problem or, or a huge issue. Um, so the, the first thing I'd say is, look, we're, you, you've always got to be forward leaning, but mostly that comes from an entrepreneur's mentality and perspective. And it's a hundred percent of the time that we're saying, Hey, we had a high level insight about this ecosystem, but this founder really cemented it in our minds. And we feel that they have what it takes to build a very large software company in said category. Um, then the, the second thing I'd say is there are some areas where we do have expertise and significant overlap with our backgrounds. And so in those areas, we take a bit more nuanced approach, meaning we're almost really narrow about what we, where we think the world is going to go. And most of our internal debates are highly technical and specific around those particular areas. So it's almost harder to convince us in spaces that we know really well than it is in, in areas that we don't. Um, and for those, yeah, we, we have a, 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 a learn mind, but really a perspective and a point of view on where the world is going to go. Um, if you bottle all this up, the real answer to your question, we're almost always forward leaning and forward thinking either through the experience of an entrepreneur or, through our own personal backgrounds. So with that in mind, is, do you feel like there's increasing appetite for like vertical specific SaaS plays? Yeah, I mean, we, probably about, uh, you, you know, we, we have this odd history at our firm where we get in business in 2013, we make a number of investments around core areas that we knew quite well, marketing technology, the ERP stack, couple infrastructure investments. And then we make this completely random investment in 2014 in a trucking marketplace, a business called Transfix. And it deviated pretty significantly from our model. Of course, it's a, it's a software as a service company and its delivery model. It mimics a marketplace, right? So you have a, you have a uh, supply and demand equation that you need to get right. There is a quote unquote tax um, that, that they take for being a part of the marketplace. But we were really passionate about supply chain and logistics. We knew the ecosystem at a high level. The two founders came in and really wowed us and we took a chance sort of deviating from our, our themes and ideas. Um, and now if you fast forward, about a third of our portfolio is what I'd call industry cloud or vertical oriented. Meaning if you think about an ideal customer profile or a buyer persona, it's extremely specific to an industry code or a, or a specific, um, you know, industry is the right word here. Um, and so we have companies that only sell into manufacturing businesses or only sell into truckers or only sell, we have, we get even more narrow. We have a company that only sells into the U S chemicals industry. Um, and I, I think, uh, that that's kind of the quick story on us in a more macro sense. What is happening is the, there's really two main themes that are driving this. One is the digital native coming into the workplace now in 
an oil and gas business or a manufacturing business or, or whatever, and taking the reins of software purchasing. And 10 years ago, that was usually tied up in a CIO bucket or at an executive function, really hard to pull away. Think about your sort of old CIOs and their ex-lawyers or accountants, right? We have this whole new paradigm of the digital native coming into the workplace generally, but it's really starting to affect a lot of these industry cloud segments. Um, and so- how does, that, how does that really affect the industry, right? Is the digital- Just the software it? that they buy is massively different. The pricing schema on the, on the, the uh, delivery and, and uh, implementation, they want to be totally different, right? Much, much faster- uh, uh, a lot, a lot uh, easier to to get it an install base up and running, but then also to remove it if necessary. Um, so you have pricing dynamics, you have user experience dynamics, which are coming into to play. Right, uh, a old line manufacturing business that operates physical plants is probably an SAP shop plus a bunch of a database businesses. Fast forward to today and a 45-year-old that is on Twitter all day using an iPhone, probably has a tough book, is making a purchasing decision. They don't, you know, the, the way they think about software purchasing is just vastly different. Um, so that's one thing. The second dynamic which is happening is pretty much every CEO of any industry cloud segment is going through a digital transformation journey. They're hiring McKinsey, Deloitte, BCG, whoever, they're getting this $5 million presentation that says you need to do X, Y, and Z, ASAP. The board probably has a committee on innovation and we got to get digital. You re they read all these news you know, things about how we got to be smarter about digital. Um, coronavirus, by the way, has only accelerated this. Um, and so you have this kind of groundswell from the bottom up, but you also have executive buy-in and, and almost board buy-in at the need to change and, and digitize. Um, most of this, if you think of classic ROI statements, is really on the cost-saving side, like substituting human capital problems, workflow problems, process problems, whatever, for technology. If you look, if you run into anybody that's paying those people five million, please introduce them to Scott. We'll <laughs> yeah, do it for there's, three. There's, I mean, listen, I talked to the. Got, we can do it for three. Right? Yeah, I, I talked to the industry cloud. So, and of course, all of these firms that I mentioned, mostly consulting shops that I mentioned, have industry cloud leader, right? And there's right. like a industry 4.0 person, right? You know, for manufacturing and healthcare and this and that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wild time in many of those services businesses because their um, revenue is off the charts in, the, in these segments um, to a degree that, that I don't think they, they ever thought really. So. I, want, I wanted to ask, because you did bring it up and I was planning to ask anyway, where do you, you know, in this industry, you know, COVID is affecting um, the ability to grow. Uh, where is it not? Where is it hurting? You know, how are you, and how do you guys even just view it as, you know, this is terrible. It's horrible. We don't want anybody to get sick. You know, we get that. But on the business side, you know, it's, it's harder to do X or it's easier to do Y. And for, for just in general or, or any specific. And I think in general, but I think if you, you know, we'll probably dive into a specific or if there's a specific you want to mention, feel free. 
I mean, I th look, I, I think everything that, that you're seeing from the cloud computing group of publicly traded companies is cascading down and, and consistent with what we're seeing at the seed stage, which broadly is to say a huge acceleration in digital transformation, e-commerce, all this stuff. And so for infrastructure and application software businesses that aren't maybe exposed to specific industry segments. And I'll come back to that. It's gangbusters. I mean, I, I think more, maybe more narrowly March, April, May pipelines were off 50% if our companies were, were mature and consistent with a sales process map 80 to 90% if it was an emerging company that didn't really qualify well and didn't have much pipeline coverage. You know, and you, it's like you needed a Zoloft in, in, uh, in, in Q2, Q1 and, and then into Q2 as a result. And you have to have very difficult board conversations just around where the world is going to go. And, and, and you have to slash and burn. You have to get the profitability, all of these things. I don't think anybody anticipated how fast stuff would come back. Um, and so while we were tracking leading indicators, we were, we were changing compensation schemas we were just kind of trying to like figure the world out. I think it came roaring back to a degree where now 90% of our portfolio is at or above where their revenue number was going to be for this year. In some of these businesses that had, that were exposed, for instance, the media and gaming, education, technology, transportation, logistics, just think of categories where people are now sitting at home and, re and remote work and work from home is, is cemented. Um, usage on these platforms has skyrocketed. So yeah. some of the, some of our portfolio companies, they're actually going to be 110 to 125% of plan for the year because there is just a massive acceleration in, in some and of these, these worlds. And, and, and these are the wins. And I, and I feel like, yeah. and I could be wrong, Michael, but like, I feel like a lot of the wins from VCs get celebrated and talked about. Yeah, yeah. This particular VC whose name I won't mention is going to make like $10 billion on a particular company's like IPO soon. I was just reading about Snowflake that. TV. Yeah. Oh yeah. I wasn't going to mention it, but you okay, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's on you. Here's what I, I thought want. you were going to talk about Palantir. That's the, that's oh, the one. Here's what I want to know though. Like how brutal is it when you whiff? when you get one wrong or you pass on somebody or when somebody passes on you, like I, I, if you're comfortable with it, like I want to know about the underbelly, like it's not all wins all yeah. the time. Like you're losing more no, often. No. Than you're, you're losing way more often than you're winning, but I don't hear as many of those stories. So if you could shed some light on some of, on some of that, the painful bits about being in your, in your role, that, that'd be really interesting. I think. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, there's two parts to what you were saying. One is where we conclude that this business, in our view, you know, our, our sort of uh, laughable response is this isn't a fit for Bowery at this time, which is a bullshit excuse for, and, and forgive my, my language, but for we're passing and, 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 you know, we don't think this is going to be a big thing. Um, and so the one side of your question is, yeah, I mean, there's countless ones where, oh, 
it, you know, yeah, it was, it was a big thing and they're huge companies now. Um, we don't, do, I, there's, there's so much velocity in, in the venture business on a day to day that it's hard to really sit back and reflect on those. Is that good? That's good in some way because you don't have to sit with the pain as much maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, your day to day is just reviewing new investment opportunities, scheduling calls with founders you want to invest in finding new, you know, it's so um, fast that it's hard to step, step back and, and really think about the ones you you missed really. Do you ever, do you ever have that moment where you can reflect and you're like, Oh my God, we just passed on Harry Potter as a movie. Studio, <laughs> right? Like you were, you're like, wait, wait a minute. No, no, no. Because as we know that, you know, you're really long in the seat in venture and it takes seven to 10 years to, yeah. to know whether you're any good at this. Um, does but, it feel, does it, which feels more painful you passing on something that turns out to be huge or them passing on you? Well, them pass. So in competitive deal situations where they passed on us and we wanted to do the deal. Yeah. That hurts way more than we just passed and we got it wrong. Um, but the thing, but the thing is, so as a firm, we obviously want to get better and we're ruthlessly competitive. So when we lose something, we want to unpack it and figure out how not to do it again and what went wrong and all this stuff. So we actually on an annual basis do look at deals in our CRM from usually about two to three years prior. And we, we basically mash that opportunity object with crunch based data. And we essentially say any company that's raised, let's say more than $10 million that hits our opportunity object, what are those? Just tell us those names. And then we can actually see, wow, okay. We like, we really missed this one or we missed that one. And most of the time, what it comes down to is one of two things in our view. One is founder, so this person just didn't have a non-obvious per, you know, perspective, unique perspective, some, something that, that in our view felt differentiated. The second is we really got wrong their ability to build a go-to-market machine. And that second one, we really kick ourselves around because we pride our firm on being experts at that stuff and trying our hardest to help seed stage founders scale those things. Um, so when the brain trust gets together and says, not, you know, no inside sales motion with a, you know, uh, uh, $180 ACV, no way cost is going to be upside down. This is disaster. It's never going to work. And then it becomes like, you know, something huge. We're like, we've never invested in your, in your, right. in your companies, right? You hey, think of hey, all the things hey, they would have missed. Listen, listen, Michael knows very well that they may have, they may wanted to consider investing in Qualia. That could have been a good idea. At one point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we don't need to rub it in. So, so Michael, is there, is there also something like, cause we, we have a lot of early stage founders and folks, Hey, if you're going to go and you're presenting, this is something you need to make sure, you know, really tight, right? Like, in terms of this go to marketplace to get across to the VC, right? Because sometimes I could also see, yeah, they didn't get it, but maybe they didn't get it because they didn't know to get it, right? Yeah. So what advice would you give those people? Like just what advice would you give someone who's like, okay, here are three things you need to make sure you get across really well. Well, I think, so the the biggest thing for our firm, and again, it's so specific and and firm dependent uh, is, 
you know, and I'm repeating myself, are they really students of an industry? You know, who, hey, who are the five to 10 prior founders that sold the company in the space? Who are the five to 10 market experts that you spoke with? Who are the five to 10 IT buyers? Do you know, did you just cold email some IT buyers and say, hey, I want to do a 30 minute chat just on this space? And, and like, if they haven't done that for us, our view is, they don't, you know, like, do they really want to be an entrepreneur? Have they gone deep enough to truly understand this problem? There's of course a perspective where if someone's already started a business in said space, we don't really, you know, ask those, those types of questions, but for first time founder, you, it's, this is hard as hell. And you, you know, you really got to know your stuff. Um, so maybe that's like one and two, but then three to your, to your point, look, our perspective again, and this is a founding theme of Bowery Capital, is the predominant early stage founder that we had spent time with was a product or engineering leader and maybe a business person in air quotes. Um, it's only recent that someone, you know, is a disciple of Roberge or Ross and came out of two SaaS companies and has built a repeatable revenue motion. And now is going to go start a company. When what he started the firm say is people like me and you, Richard, have <laughs> right. not hit the mold historically. <laughs> no, but like, so that was hard. when we started our firm, there just weren't that many people that knew the modern tactics and, and motions of, of, of um, software sales. I, I'm, I'm obviously uh, going to get, eviscerated for that, that statement. But, but so our, our perspective was, hey, founders generally undervalue and don't appreciate truly how hard it is to even go from, let's say, zero to one in revenue. And really what that comes down to is they think sales and marketing and customer success is this kind of art they don't really understand that it's very scientific, that there's a well-worn road and set of research. They don't put in the time and effort. And what do you get? You get horrible pipeline coverage in the beginning, no qualification frameworks that make any sense. You know, googly-eyed founders going in and trying to convince a Fortune 500 company to do things. They focus on indirect selling, which is who cares, right? As a, as a, as a, uh, channel programs are nearly impossible to scale in the beginning. They do just do all these frankly dumb things that kill the company. Because again, the attractiveness of a seed stage business is mostly in sales velocity and month over month revenue growth. And if you're Bessemer or emergence or whatever, where you've done a lot of SaaS deals, you now have pattern recognition and you can say, oh, 30% month over month, this type of, you know, CAC LTV, blah, blah, blah. I want to, I want to fund this business. And so you, you waste six, 12, 18 months if you don't appreciate how hard this is. Why does that, why does that keep happening, Michael? Why, why, why does the, <laughs> like, why does the collective you, yeah. the VC world, why does the collective well, I think keep funding these people. No. Well, so yeah. So my point was going to be, look, we don't, we, uh, it would be very hard for us to invest in, 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 uh, only second and third time founders. So naturally there's going to be people who come into our office and they don't know 
really how to build a sales playbook or a marketing playbook and scale the, or, you know, they, they don't know any of this stuff. It's fine. But have they at least done the research around competitive positioning? Cause that's going to come up day one. Have they really done the research around who might be the most appropriate five to 10 proof of concept customers? If we're in kind of an inside or an outside sales motion, um, if you know, we have this, this new paradigm of, really a marketing exercise uh, where we're driving inbound uh, to a website. We're converting through either a free or, or, a, or a paid mechanism um, to get people to trial or use our product or service. That's, that's marketing. It's not, in my view, it's not really sales. Um, of course, we can do a lot of things with those leads that, that may become sales. That's so a fairly new thing, less than 10 years. They're not gonna, no one's gonna come in and be a growth hacker and be amazing at that, but at least have they thought through what are those channels that they're gonna activate? Does it relate to a developer uh, or a community type of effort, right? They, they just have to come in and be, I'm, I'm elongating this answer, but they have to at least have some knowledge there. Otherwise, again, we're just, it's tough for us to really get excited because we know we're gonna put in a million to $2 million in this thing they're not going to appreciate it. They're not going to take it seriously. They're not going to be scientific about it. And we're going to have to bridge the company 12 months from now because they didn't use any rigor or seriousness of purpose. So, around. so I've, I've worked with a couple of VCs and I've worked at a couple of companies where we, where the VC would come in and say, okay, we've built this arm to teach you how to build the sales motion. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of becomes this fee back into the VC, right? You know, they got to pay you back, you know, whatever the fee is. Do y'all have right. something like that? Is that, is that, yeah. Hey, yeah, should we see that? But you know, our founders don't want to go there. You know, are you pitching no. right now, Richard? I feel like Richard. <laughs> might be pitching well, right. so, so <laughs> different strokes for different folks, right? The firms you're mentioning and, and I know exactly the, the one you're mentioning, um, uh, is, um, you, you know, th step back to 30,000 feet. Uh, um, Scott was at Insight, created Insight's inside program, then launched OpenView, and is mostly using his experience from Insight to start OpenView Labs, which is what you're referring to. And they are I, at a stage of I investment. Or not, so, yes. What's that? Yes, we are. I, I am a fan of Scott and OpenView, yeah. but I wasn't sure if I wanted to, you wanted me to mention it, so. Yeah, it's fine. Um, they are operating at a series B or a series C stage, which generally is 10 million in ARR and above. We'll just use the kind of SaaS ter terms here. Um, where we're, our focus is really on, as an entrepreneur, scale and, and consistency. I already have product market fit. I already have some repeatability. I'm really just sort of tweaking the dials at this point. Um, and using a venture playbook, which is to say a lot of cash to scale my organization super quickly for that doesn't we're a seed stage investor. Usually the people we meet with just have a business plan. There's literally no product or anything. And so it would be impossible for us to charge money for this stuff or to do that kind of, uh, uh, yeah. motion. So our op, yeah. So look, our operating principles are, um, are basically twofold. And again, go back to kind of classic ROI statement. Founder takes our money, obviously, because the partnership is great, obviously, because we focus on B2B and that's kind of all we do. But really, 
a seed stage founder kind of needs two things, save time or save money. Really does, you know, and if we have the expertise internally through a team to basically go on site and do one of those two things, it's a home run and they're going to want to work with us. Um, of course, there's a lot to unpack there. Of course, there's a lot of nuance, but that's a general theme of an entrepreneur. Gosh, I don't have enough time. Can you help me with this sales playbook creation or case study or help me with pricing or help me with it, right? Uh, or, or save money. Gosh, I have to pay XYZ firm to hire my first AE. Can you just do this for me for free? Yeah, great. Okay, we can do it. Um, so anyways, that, that, that's, that's really the two, save time, save money. If we don't, if we, if we, if we um, uh, do nothing else, we think that we'll still succeed in the eyes of an entrepreneur. So, so this translates into something else that we see and we hear about a lot, right? It's the average tenure of the VP of sales, right? 18 months, dropping to 16 yeah. months, I've heard. And it, I've often seen it where it is this sort of early stage tech founder who thinks they get it after six months of working with the head of sales, with a revenue leader. Um, and they try to transition them out or, or the board sometimes will be like, wait, what, you know, we need someone different or something. Do you see that being part of the challenge or do you think that it's really like, this is, this was just not the right sales leader? Like, how do you get those? I guess here's the question. How do you get those tech minded early stage founders to your point, or even if they've got a good, good business plan to let someone else hold the baby, right? You know, um, and do that. Yeah. I think early on, we're almost always in this founder led selling mode. We, we don't think that someone will be as effective as the founder at closing the early book of business. If it's a low price software product, perhaps their, their complement is a, is a marketing manager or, or someone who, who really is just ideating and being creative with them on, on channel proliferation um, and then maintaining the, the, the presence online, but, but sticking maybe to sales. Yeah. I mean, whether it's inside or outside, I, I just think that the founder has to start, you know, first 10, 50, 100 deals, obviously depending upon ACV. Um, and really what we're trying to do is not only get the, the sales process map a bit more systematic, but we're also trying to tell the founder and work with the founder on, you're generating so much exhaust here on things that work and don't work we got to productize this into a sales playbook as fast as humanly possible because the person that comes after you, they're not going to know anything. Right. So you'll see our firm do a lot of recording of the early calls. We'll role play internally with the founder before they go out and sell. We'll build that sales playbook alongside them so that basically when they're going to hire that first AE or that first VP of sales, it's, it's a well-worn path. It's, it's six to 12 months of re revenue generation. Um, that was my one question was how long does that take? And here's a really good one. And it's a little bit of chicken egg. You're, you're, you know, you got your one or 2 million seeds. You got, you know, the good logos. Um, do you hire uh, an AE first or do you go after a manager VP? You know, what, and a grand, I guess it's going to be an, it depends quite answer, but how do you guys coach a lot of your yeah. teams? There's, I'd say the, the broad generalization in our portfolio is we really try and find a true account executive 
that can complement the 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 founder and really carry a bag primarily the the um rare instance where we do come across someone who's a player first early coach let's call it in their career so you have this kind of player coach model um but has has consistently carried a quota and not really deviated from that we're we're okay with that the the conversation usually is resourcing and and how they're thinking about scale um because we don't want to put someone in that seat and then have them basically mimic an AE for another two years. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was going to manage people. Um, so I'd say it's probably 75% hire the AE 25% hire someone who's probably got a little bit of, of management experience and have them sort of be the initial AE and then, and then potentially scale the organization. But there's, there's two interesting things that I think about. And I'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts on what's becoming more apparent is a more mature account executive that very clearly has been coached well can easily scale to your first VP of sales and alleviate this problem of going out, running that search. And I'm talking an organization that's between one and probably five in, in ARR. So we're not super mature. The person's maybe hit numbers for six to eight quarters. They came out of a place where they were trained really well they understand the management, you know, piece. All right, let's get, you know, let's give them a shot and let's, let's put them into that first VP of sales role. Um, and it's, I've had varying degrees of success with it. Um, and okay. I don't really know what works and what doesn't. And then the second thing is, which would be what you articulated is why I feel like every two years I'm having a board conversation, which goes something to the effect of, and I'm being crude and brutal here, but it's basically like, we need to fire this VP of sales and bring on some hitter. And then two years later, we have to say, oh, wait, we're at 50 in ARR. All right, now we need, no, no, no. We need somebody who's going to get us to a hundred. And I'm like, well, wait, they didn't miss a quarter. They're good. We got everything humming on training, productivity, all this stuff that they set up. What are we like, are we, what are we doing? Like, you know, Before Scott answers, hold on, Scott, before you answer, you can look at the look on his face and he's like, why couldn't I have talked to this guy so many years ago? <laughs> this is, this is the, you know, and Scott's had a tremendous run. Like he's, he's really done well. And, and I say that as a friend and a guy who's worked for him. Um, so I, I, I know his playbook, um, but I'm going to let Scott jump in because this is, this is his arena, but I just felt like I need to say that Scott. So I, uh, as much shit as I give you about other stuff. It's too early in the day and I haven't had enough tequila yet to fully answer my <laughs> Uh, question the way I want to. I will say this to, to the first point <clears throat> about an, a really kind of senior, really good AE kind of being able to do, let's call it like the first year in terms of ARR growth. The problem I think, Michael, is you said, you know, they need to be coached really well. And I think the problem is where the fuck do you find that particular coach to coach this AE? Where are the guardrails there? And in, in a lot of orgs they just don't exist you might put them in place at bowery or you know other other vcs might have a resource there for somebody um but if it's a if it's like a engineering founder or a finance founder who's never sold shit themselves they, they can't be that guardrail right yeah, so that's a great point I, I i think the gap is like well 
why don't you hire, you know, some, some woman who's built and scaled things before and put them in as a advisor to this company or some guy who's done it, you know, a few times before and, and kind of help, you know, guide this per person and trying to and kind of coach them. Like, yes, you're selling, but also, Hey, you should be thinking about these things the way an executive would be thinking. And I think the part that, that screws that all up, Michael, is, is that companies are not putting the right coach there to guide that AE. And so they're putting that AE who's really strong, but then expecting them to just like intuitively figure all this shit out. And it's not that easy, you know? And so it, yeah, it falls, falls, to piece, falls to pieces a little bit too often, I think, you know? I would, yeah. I would also argue too that the, they hire pedigree. Sometimes you hire a pedigree, right? And, you know, to, you know, and I'll say this many times is that you can go find a great enterprise AE, right? I see it all the time with people from Salesforce, right? And Salesforce, they're super smart. They understand, they can follow a process. They haven't had to get their hands dirty and actually build something from zero to five, right? You know, you know, I was always the zero to 10 or 15 and Scott's always been up to the 25 or 30 million kind of space. And for whatever reason, I got stuck there or I didn't want to go bigger and people probably picked up on that. Right. But nobody was ever there to either to coach me either. And I think generationally it's different too, is I'm a Gen Xer and I didn't really think anything about getting a mentor. Like a mentor felt like someone who would micromanage me right now. You got all these, these, you know, millennials and Gen Z and they're like, I got 20 mentors, right? <laughs> they got, they spend too much time on the phone with mentors sometimes. So yeah. It's unique. And I, I agree with you. Why do you think people won't give that person the shot, right? If you, if someone scales it from zero to 25 or 25 to 50 and they're like, Oh, we need someone to get us to a hundred million. Right. Or we need it to go from a hundred to public. Like, and now, and now you're just trying to get my blood boiling again, Richard, <laughs> you're just, you're picking the, picking the wound here. I don't yeah. know. I, I could go off about this, but I don't want to steal Michael's. I want Michael. Michael's answer. Cause he's the VC. Yeah. My, V, uh, I, uh, I would say it's almost always a combination of things, but really I'd say one is um, the sort of board CEO dynamic and the consistent theme I see is a lot of later stage venture investors have built very scalable businesses um either as investors on the board or or have started companies and their influence is very significant to a ceo where that that tends to come up and usually win the day the um the and and it's easier for a ceo to say let's go yeah okay to totally understand we want to continue to build a maturing organization and and um and I'm fine activating this search. Um, the second thing is it's as a CEO, it's glamorous. They're going to get interviews from, you know, a bunch of, they're going to interview a bunch of totally amazing chief commercial officers, chief revenue officers, people who are attracted to gaining some pre-public equity and being able to manage a, a, you know, probably smaller organization than where they're at now, but ultimately shape it and, and, and create it in a way. Um, so there's just this constant, like, 
up leveling of your management team. And then when you get into the flow of a recruiting process, the excitement of, wow, if we hired this person, this would be amazing as number two. Um, those are probably the two. I mean, the, the thing that I always talk to founders about is just the loyalty equation. And I just think, look, I mean, um, if the, why ruin something that's working? If, if this has been consistent, effective, uh, productive, and we're, we're moving the ball forward at the rate that, that the board of directors and, and the executive team thinks, um, I, I just, I don't, I don't, uh, see it as a, as a necessity. And most of um, my peers come into these conversations and it's almost guaranteed that this is going to come up every few years. Um, so yeah. what, um, what happens when you're, you know, if you're going in a little earlier, right? Series A, maybe a series B, and then the C and D folks come along. Are you cashed out? Are you pushed into a smaller piece? You just sort of sit there and now you're just going to wait because maybe the series C and D people get board seats or something like that. Like just what's that process? I don't know. I don't have any visibility. Yeah. What's well, the like dynamic shift. So the next what, round comes. Yeah. So, so we're almost always leading seed rounds of funding and we're serving on the board of directors because we're usually leading and pricing the round. And so our relationship with the founder is, you know, super early in the, in their life of, of the company, arguably it's at inception and we're, we're capitalizing a business plan to put them in business. Um, and so there's a lot of loyalty and a lot of trust. And if we do our job, um, as board directors, we, uh, you know, get, give appropriate advice, our, our, the team that I'm mentioning that goes in and helps these companies does well, we earn their trust and, and we, we, we keep that trust. So I've changed my tune a bit on this. What I used to say was after about the series B or the series C in a company, we would remove ourselves from the board of directors predominantly to free up independent board seats so that they could put people like you and Scott on the board who have operational experience and, and know uh, way more than me about this stuff. But we're now in a fundraising environment where there is so much capital in the market that I've been in probably about three to five situations where I scratch my head and say, that is a absolutely terrible piece of advice. And why this person is in a board meeting is beyond me. Um, I don't think I'm going to leave. I think this, it would be beneficial for me to stick around here. So now I say, I'll do it on a case by case basis. And my, by the way, my colleague, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but my colleague Lauren is uh, kind of, uh, of, the, of the same perspective. We should be cautious and defensive because we still have capital at risk. We still have equity ownership and we still have a close relationship with a founder where we can call them up after the meeting and say, Hey, what'd you think of that? Uh, and if they don't say that was effing stupid, we can say, Hey, here's some of the re like we just, that doesn't make any sense. And here's why. Um, so uh, the, the other challenge that we're, we're facing in, in this market environment is um, the expansion of these boards. And so I'm on a few boards and this is a different thing, but, when you have a large board that just becomes uh, a bear for a founder, it's a time suck. It's a huge uh, amount of work. And so if there's ways that we can get 
new directors ramped quicker, if there's ways that we can uh, chair comp committees or, or chair other committees and kind of be leaders, it's helpful, right? So we don't want to just leave the board uh, with four or five years of board experience in said company. Um, so anyways, that, that's the operating ethos at Bowery and, and how we tend to work. Um, and, and look, what I'm, what I'm really saying or the, the kind of output of all of this, which also speaks to your question is, yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're, if we're not on the board anymore, we, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to have any influence or, or any, uh, influence, any, any change, have, have opinion or decision in some of the executive hiring, um, strategic decisions of the business, all that stuff, um, becomes really, really, really challenging. So this has been great, Michael. We really appreciate you spending yeah, some sure. time with us. Um, I'm very grateful for your candor and the way that you uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. answer some, some of these questions. We always end the show by saying, what can we do for you? Is there any way that we can be helpful? Oh, you well, Bowery? yeah. I mean, um, sure. Yeah. The, the, the primary motivation for us always is if you or your listeners are, you know, business software founder, super early, like literally nothing is too early for us. We, we would love to be considered. Um, and we, we get really excited about uh, these topics and, and talking through this stuff. Um, and then the second thing is, is we're, we index really heavy as a firm towards uh, the sales marketing and CS stuff, but it is very specific to, you know, seed stage, right? We're, we're super, super early in the life of these companies and we can't really be that effective. As I mentioned, uh, when someone like an open view takes over, they just have so many more resources and stuff. Um, but there's this gap probably around sort of two in ARR up to, to, uh, 10 to 15 where, yeah, if, if you have listeners that have specific expertise, we're constantly looking for, adding marketing muscle to our team. Um, there's, there's sort of a new paradigm there with bottoms up selling that, that we've just been uh, students of and, and have hired a lot of external consultants to our companies to work with. Um, people who really know pricing very well is something that we've been, we've been focused on uh, historically. We've kind of gone back and forth. Do we have that expertise internal or external? We've kind of now moved towards, we want it externally. We, we don't want to have like a full-time pricing person. The list goes on and on, but you get the idea. If you're a practitioner that's got a specific area of expertise, hit me up um, and, and would love to, to chat and try and try and at least just resource some of our companies to you. So that's great. Happy to, happy to try to help and, and, and support you and Bowery, Michael. Appreciate you once, once again, Richard. Cool. Yeah. Thank take you. It away, take it away, Richard. Yeah. This is the part where we got to plug our two sponsors of lead 411 and gong. So uh, we're super excited. They can help support us to, to bring these episodes to you, but also uh, support someone like Michael Brown, you know, coming on board and just really laying it out there for people. It's been really insightful. And I, I wish there were more of it because I don't, I would, I know there's a lot of founders and salespeople who are just like, how does this whole system work? Right. And I think you really helped shed some light on that. So thank you to our to our two sponsors of, of Gong and Lead 411. And Michael, thank you so much for for being a part of it all. Sure. Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your day. You too. You too.